Welcome to IABTI Blast, the podcast for bomb technicians and investigators. Hello, everybody. My name is David O'Sullivan. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Lance to talk to us about blast injuries. Rachel, you're very welcome to IABTI Blast. Thank you for having me. I know blast trauma is uh, the most cheerful topic for everybody. So tell us, how did you get into this very interesting field? I'd love to pretend that it was more intentional and deliberate, but the reality is a lot of these motions in my life and in my career have been a bit by me pursuing whatever is shiniest. And uh, explosions are pretty darn shiny. I began working as a biomedical engineer as a student, and I was really focused on cardiopulmonary physiology. So I was looking at the way that the heart and the lungs process fluids. Now, the reason I love that is because I just love the math of fluid mechanics. And so I wanted to apply it to the human body and how the lungs work. And then as I continued further in that career, I started working on underwater breathing systems as an engineer for the U.S. Navy. I was a civilian down in Panama City, Florida. After that, they offered me the opportunity to go to graduate school which I did a little bit begrudgingly because I was pretty much over going to school at that point, uh, but they offered to pay for it. So I did. And at the, at the university where I went, which was Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, there was a lab there that focused on injury biomechanics. Now I fit into that lab pretty naturally because my whole background with using fluid mechanics and the lungs and looking at the lungs was all about taking these principles of engineering and applying them to figuring out the ways that the human body breaks and fails. So instead of looking at will a building collapse, I'm more looking at will a leg break. And this lab really appealed to me just because I'm someone who's pretty clumsy and I hurt myself a lot. And since I had already this tie-in with the Navy and looking at underwater breathing systems, I began looking at the pathology of blast trauma and how these shockwaves in particular can injure and kill human beings, especially their lungs. Okay. So you've clearly done your research into historical blast scenes as well as more recent blast scenes. Tell us about where did you start your research when you started looking at blast trauma? I didn't realize I was a history nerd until I started researching blast trauma. I had never really liked the subject in school because they always make you memorize a bunch of stuff. But then I realized that in terms of blast trauma, this is not only a horrifying thing that can happen to modern day people, but it's also a thing that we can't ethically do to human volunteers on purpose. So it creates this weird niche of science where normally we would just set up and run an experiment and we can't do that with blast. So what that means is that I have to look to history in order to find cases for my research. I began looking at these historical cases pretty much out of necessity because of that kind of conundrum where I'm not allowed to blow people up, at least not legally. What I started with was actually World War II. Because I had this tie-in with underwater physiology and underwater survival, I really wanted to look at what our current standards for safety were in underwater explosions and whether or not they were founded and what I could do to maybe improve those or improve safety measures, just generally looking at what the field needed. The biggest time period for people getting blasted underwater is far and away in World War II. I've even seen some estimates that more service members received underwater explosion trauma 
or experienced underwater explosions than in air explosions during World War II, which is pretty significant. And a lot of the case studies of what would happen was an American ship would get hit and it would start to sink. But because they had been prepared and engaged in warfare, especially with submarine warfare with U-boats and wolf packs, they would have depth charges primed and ready to go on the decks of their ships. As these ships would sink, these depth charges are not that smart. It's a simple depth trigger. So it would reach whatever depth it was preset to go off at that they were about to drop it for. And it would go off while the survivors from the sinking ship were still in the water in the area. That led to thousands of cases of trauma. I, I, I mean, I, I can only count the thousands from the case reports that actually got written up, but there are way more than that. And then on top of that, once opposing forces figured out that this happened. They, of course, started using this as a weapon and intentionally charging uh, sailors in the water as well. So that's really where I got started is looking at these cases, picking apart the Battle of Midway. There were a lot of underwater blast cases in that one as those ships start to go down in combat and looking at this narrative of what happens to a sailor after their ship goes down. They can still be killed. So what would you say then, what are the primary differences between uh, blast effect on a body underwater and blast effect out of water? Is there, a, is there a major difference in the trauma the body suffers? There's the same type of trauma, but you see it's kind of weighted differently. So there are two major differences in, in what you're going to see in the human beings who are affected. The first one is shrapnel, and then the second one is distance. When you have blast in air, you see tons of shrapnel effects. Obviously, flying shrapnel is a huge concern for any explosion that occurs in air. However, underwater, the density of the water really absorbs flying objects pretty well. It's the same reason you're not going to have a lot of luck if you're just shooting into water. That whole kind of James Bond thing where they shoot into water and he just swims deeper to absorb it. It's actually not that terribly wrong. So the same thing occurs with shrapnel effects where you should have shrapnel and fragmentation that don't go very far in the water at all. And you don't see a lot of those injury types from people underwater. But what you do see a lot in water that is less common in air is then you see these people who are experiencing injuries from much farther away. You got to think about uh, the shockwave propagation in water like you think about sound. So think about how far away you can hear a whale sound. You can hear it for miles and miles and miles. The same thing happens with the shockwave from a bomb where there are case reports of people being injured for up to two miles away from an underwater explosion now and they're being injured from the shockwave two miles away from an underwater explosion so there are cases on land where maybe a huge explosion goes off two miles away you might have people with broken glass or you know something like broken glass if there's a reflection of the shockwave off the off the clouds or something like that but Aside from that, an actual injury from the shockwave itself would be just completely unprecedented. Whereas underwater, it becomes possible because the water transmits the shockwave so much better. Okay. So the, uh, what are the different types of, of blast injury that the human body can suffer? That's actually a great tie-in because there are four categories. All right. No, I'm not expecting anyone to remember this. It's very easily Googleable. So if you lose track of your four categories, just type it into Google. The right answer will come up. 
But the first cat, and they're numbered. So the first category, easily and nicely, is called primary blast trauma. I don't know who did that, but they were very nice very to our memories. So primary, <laughs> primary blast trauma essentially means any injuries from the shock wave or the overpressure wave itself. Shockwave is what we get from high explosives. It rises from zero to maximum pressure in literally zero seconds instantaneous, but low explosives can still create a pressure wave that rises a little bit slower, but that can still be injurious. So anything that occurs from this wave, the pressure wave itself and alone is gonna be categorized as primary blast trauma. What those typically look like the lungs are by far the most easily injured organ. So a lot of the time with primary blast injury, you're going to be looking at the lungs being injured first and foremost. They get hit by that waveform. They don't pass it through the body very neatly. And it's kind of slammed to a stop at the surface. And the lungs then sort of fill with blood. Less common scenarios are traumatic brain injury, that's a primary shock wave. And we can come back to that one. And then you can also have lower gut injuries. We have gas in our intestines, David. I don't know if you knew this, but um, <laughs> it's there. And so that can also cause a primary shock, primary blast trauma in, in the lower gut. And that is harder to achieve than the lungs, but it's still physically possible. Now, the second category, also very nicely named secondary trauma. <laughs> this is this is your shrapnel and fragmentation effects. So secondary blast trauma is anything that gets thrown by the bomb. Now, this of course can include anything like ball bearings or nails that was strapped around the outside. It can include unintentional projectiles as well, like pieces of wall or whatever has been nearby. The third tertiary is the injuries from when the victim is physically displaced by the bomb. So if a person is thrown backwards and they hurt their back, that is a tertiary injury because they have been thrown. Now, the really key thing about tertiary injuries is that they are extremely rare unless people are protected. So Far and away, the most common are these primary and secondary injuries where you're having an injury from the shockwave or from sort of projectiles. Um, tertiary injuries really only occur if people are like in a bomb suit or they have some kind of protection. Because if you have a blast waveform that's strong enough to throw a human body, it's definitely also strong enough to kill a person. So... They might get picked up and thrown, but they're going to be dead for just like a fun uh, potpourri basket of other reasons as well. The last category is called quaternary injuries. So quaternary meaning four, and that's sort of your others. So anything else that's not really covered by the first three. Now, if people have mixed biological effects into their bomb, or if there is some sort of chemical weapon in there, if you have a nuclear weapon and you're seeing radiation injuries or, or burns are in there, burns are the most common quaternary effect. Those all get sort of lumped into this category for Okay. So in relation to, obviously, the primary is the one that's going to, that's, that's going to be the most serious. What, what, would you, what would you look for in terms of the injury to a human body from, we'll say, a primary injury? Well, primary or secondary can be extremely serious. So secondary can also be extremely serious because you can have things like traumatic amputation, so loss of a limb, and you can have loss of blood there. That's going to be 
very potentially life-threatening with uh but let's answer your actual question <laughs> primary shock injuries typically what you're looking for is any signs of distress by the person who got hit now the good thing about these injuries is that people generally know they have them especially if you have a lung injury or if you have a lower gut injury if you have a lung injury, typically what the person will start doing is they'll start coughing a lot. They will start to have difficulty breathing. You can actually have up to 15% of the area of your lungs that is damaged by a blast without knowing it. So your lungs are surprisingly robust. They've got a lot of redundancy in them, but you can identify this surface area damage with a simple X-ray. So it's a very simple test and you can survive anything up to about 85% lung damage. So you, I mean, you, you better hope you're near a hospital if you get 85% lung damage, but you can do it. It'll be okay if you're properly treated right away. So you, you see the same signs with those as you do with most kinds of respiratory distress. Now, uh, to draw an alarming parallel, it's kind of similar to what you see with COVID because they're actually remarkably similar in things that they do to the lungs. Now, in the case of a shockwave, you're filling the lungs with blood. And that's causing your respiratory distress. In the case of COVID, you're filling the lungs with liquid. It's going to have the similar end effect. In terms of the lower gut stuff, uh, they will know it. There's, uh, there's not a lot of mystery when you have a, a lower intestinal injury. Those parts of the body have a ton of nerve endings. This is actually why constipation is so uncomfortable. Everyone is, can probably relate to that, but any sort of trauma or change to the intestinal tract is very obvious. And so they will have lower gut pain and uh, abdominal soreness really quickly. So in terms of the, say, damage to the lungs, in terms of our, our members and the, the people that are likely to be listening to this, what action should they take if they are at a scene where a colleague has been injured and suffers a uh, a blast injury to their lungs, which isn't immediately visible, what would they look for? You would look for coughing. So if anyone is coughing, um, that is a sign that they might have some sort of lung damage. Now, if you really want to do just a very quick survey, a lot of this lung damage will show up with a simple stethoscope. So just pushing a stethoscope against someone's, you know, back and chest and, and listening for the same thing that you would, any doctor would listen for in normal circumstances, which is essentially you're listening for the sounds of bubbles. If it sounds like your lungs are bubbling in there, that means there's fluid because as the lungs are trying to expand and contract, you're essentially like creating these little fluid connections that then pop and it comes across over the stethoscope as bubbles. But yeah, the coughing is probably the big one, especially if they're coughing any quantity of blood. Now, the movies have lied to us, as nobody in IABTI will be surprised to learn, but um, the movies have lied a lot. So typically, if people are coughing up blood, that it's not as dramatic as Hollywood depicts it. It's typically like small trace amounts that are like little wisps of blood in with normal amounts of, of lung butter kind of gunk that comes up as, <laughs> as if you have a cold. And so any quantity of blood is really worth going to just get checked out by a doctor. They can put you on oxygen. They can give you things to help clear it up. There's no like big dramatic 
circus of a medical treatment that you should be scared of getting, um, but they can give you things that will help the recovery period go more smoothly. So effectively, it, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's something that right. you can recover from. Exactly. It's uh, pulmonary lung damage from a shockwave is very treatable. And obviously, people wearing protective equipment, such as a bomb suit, is the blast effect on their body likely to, to mitigate against any lung damage? Yes. So bomb suits are extremely effective, obviously. What else is surprisingly effective is any kind of bulletproof vest. So this is a really fun piece of last trauma history. Uh, during the 1970, during the troubles in Northern Ireland, there were a ton of blast cases. Obviously, they have IEDs going off there. This is a pretty common blast scenario, unfortunately. And one of the most famous papers in the blast trauma field comes out of that time period where the British soldiers were wearing bulletproof vests that were made out of a bubbly rubber. So they, I forget, I'm blanking on the, the proper name of it, but they were named out of a specific kind of rubber. And what was discovered was that specific kind of rubber actually made the shockwave effects worse. So people were more protected from shrapnel and fragmentation by this PPE, but they were more susceptible to shockwave trauma to their lungs because they put this material over their chest that increased the amount of shockwave that was transmitting into their body. This was obviously a huge lesson and vests are no longer designed that way. So every single modern bulletproof vest, modern piece of PPE is actually designed out of material that also lessens how much shockwave gets transmitted to the body. So even though people are wearing them for gunshots, things like that, they also have a hugely protective effect in safeguarding the lungs against the effects of explosions. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's actually why in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, within the last couple of decades, we started seeing so much more traumatic brain injury because people's lungs are protected now. And all of a sudden their brains are, sur they're surviving injuries that previously would have killed them. So obviously a blast injury can affect the, anywhere on the human body, not necessarily. We've talked about lungs, but you've, you've gone on to brain injury. Again, what's the effect of a blast on the, the human brain? The brain is more difficult to injure than the lungs. So if, if people are not wearing body armor, if they're not protected, then it's more likely that they're going to have the lung trauma. And so that is kind of your nice confirmation that your brain is probably okay if you're not having lung trauma. But um, if you do have protection, that means people are, are now surviving blasts that would have killed them. And that blast can have an impact that causes traumatic brain injury. The mechanism for that is a little bit different. It's a little bit complicated, um, but the fav my favorite metaphor is that the brain is a little bit like jello. Now, it doesn't ricochet back and forth in the head. That is a misconception. It's an extremely common misconception. It's everywhere. But the way that the brain's material properties make it move, it's actually remarkably similar to a wobbly jello mold. So if you uh, shake it, it will wiggle. And that wiggle is really bad for the neuron. So essentially that's what's occurring with traumatic brain injury is these waveforms pass into the skull and they cause what's called shear deformation. So that we more commonly call as like a wobble. 
And when that occurs, it can overstretch the neurons and it can overstretch them to the point that they're no longer working correctly. Now that's what we call like the mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. In the more severe cases, it can stretch and break the blood vessels. And so that you'll actually have a visible marker where you'll have blood on the surface of the brain or in the brain stem. So those are a little bit more uh, visibly obvious and easy to diagnose, but it's possible to have these brain injuries that are occurring without any external signs. Okay, so I guess the message here really is to get yourself checked out if you're in a scenario like that where there's no visible injuries, you could still have a significant trauma to the brain Absolutely. or to, to another part of your body. Right. And here's, okay, here's the biggest thing about brain trauma that I personally feel is important to convey. If you've actually had a brain trauma, you are temporarily not a reliable witness to your own condition. So you are not the one who should decide if you need to speak out. Designate a brain buddy. Pick a friend. Someone who you know won't freak out and make you take care of their feelings, but who you know could give you a quick test, do the eyeball thing that cops do to see if you're drunk. If your eyes are behaving abnormally, that's one of the first and most clearest signs of brain trauma. So if they think you're having abnormal behavior, designate someone else who you trust to tell you when it's time to go get checked out. Because the reality is immediately following a brain trauma, if that's occurred and you are put, they put you on oxygen, that's considered helpful. So we don't have any long-term cures for brain trauma right yet. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people working on it. It's a huge active area of research, but if you seek immediate treatment and you let them put you on oxygen, that that helps improve the outcome. And then they can also monitor you with the CT scan to make sure you don't have anything bleeding in there that needs to be addressed right away. Okay. I'm going to change tack here a little bit, Rachel. Okay. You, you, you're, you're the author of a book about the Hunley and you investigated the Hunley and the deaths of the, uh, the crew on board. I tell did. Us, tell us a little bit about that and about what your findings were. Okay. Um, oh, I can tie this in. So yeah, I am the author of a book. The book is titled In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. And I actually wrote it because people kept asking me questions about blast trauma, which is, as a science nerd, an experience I've never had before. Normally, when I start talking about my work, they wander away. Uh, so that was kind of my first clue that I actually like had a topic and a story that people really cared about. A lot of those questions were coming from veterans who had questions about their own blast trauma. So that was really important to me to include some kind of explanation of blast trauma in the book. But essentially, that project was a capstone project to my doctoral dissertation, which was looking at patterns of explosive trauma underwater. And I did it kind of unintentionally, as I mentioned, like a lot of things. Um, I just started looking at the problem and I got off on a huge tangent and then before I knew it, I was standing in the mud in some pond in a random farmer's tobacco farm in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. Things are wildly out of hand. But anyway, uh, just to recap, for those who are not familiar, the H.L. Henley is a submarine from the American Civil War. It was a Confederate submarine that was used on February 17th, 1864 to blow up the Union ship USS Housatonic off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina. And for my fellow bomb nerds, it used a bomb that was 200 pounds of black powder on a spar that was 16 feet long. So this is not a great plan. 
And um, essentially what I was doing with that was to look at what the risks of some of these patterns of blast trauma were to the crew inside the submarine. Obviously, as we discussed, shrapnel is really not a big concern underwater. So even though they're only 16 feet away on land, you would have been torn to pieces by just the fragmentation effects. Inside the hull of the submarine, they're still close enough to this bomb the size of a beer keg to come up with primary trauma effects to their lungs and brain. And so that was a lot of my research into that particular project, gauging what the risks were to the crew from their own explosion. And what did you find when you looked at the remains of the crew? What were you able to to tell from, I know I appreciate it's it's some time later, but what did your findings tell you about the, the deaths of the crew? Well, I, I wasn't the one who personally examined the remains. Um, that was actually a team of forensics anthropologists, experts from the Smithsonian who did that in um, hands-on investigation. So I was just reading their work. I'm not that cool, David. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Essentially, the key pieces of blast trauma were all there from, from my perspective. So in this case, you have a set of eight remains, because this is a hand crank summary. So seven of them were cranking, and then one of them was the pilot. And none of these remains have skeletal injuries. Now, of course, as we mentioned, traumatic amputations, things like that, secondary blast effects from shrapnel and fragmentation can absolutely cause skeletal trauma. But if people are protected from that by the water, all you really see in a primary blast death is damage to the lungs, possibly lower gut, possibly brain. Sometimes these people who are impacted in this manner simply fall where they were standing and they don't have any external signs of injury whatsoever. And that was really consistent with what the reports were from the Hunley crew. So they had this absolute lack of damage to their skeletons. They simply fell over where they were in the bilge of the submarine. And of course, all the soft tissue had rotted away because they were underwater for about 150 years. So it's kind of remarkable we had anything to work with. But some of them were encased in silt really early on and their brains were intact. And so they were off, they were a little messed up again, 150 years in salt water, but they had staining on the surface of the brain that was consistent with blood patterns. So I was sitting there reading these reports. I was like, that looks like blast trauma. So that's actually a very classical presentation of a blast trauma case, especially one underwater where there are no projectiles to cause this kind of secondary trauma effects. All right. I was also reading, you also looked at uh, Second World War, which you said is where you, your interest in the subject started. What, what, did, you, what did you find in terms of uh, World War II and, and blast trauma in, oh. in cases you, you looked at yourself? Oh, you're about to learn about my favorite British person in the history of the world. <laughs> I don't know if you're prepared for this. But, um, all right. So essentially during World War II, it's the first time they've really paid attention in a scientific fashion to blast trauma. Now, World War I was the first major conflict after the invention of high explosives. And so it's where we see the emergence of this phenomenon of shell shock, which is thought to be a combination of PTSD and post-traumatic brain injury. And it's also the first time they really start seeing blast trauma. But there was not a ton of scientific evaluation of what was happening. They were pretty busy with the war. So by World War II, all of a sudden they start seeing these same patterns occur again. They put this tons of scientific effort into it, especially the Admiralty. 
the British Royal Navy was amazing. They had the coolest blast scientists there. One of them in particular was a gentleman named Horace Cameron Wright. And he's one of my favorite people in military history because he was a physiologist before the war. He gets his PhD in the middle of it after the Blitz has started. He's working with the Royal Navy. He's working down at Portsmouth in the UK. So very close to where you are. And he decides that this progress is not moving forward fast enough. So what does Kara Wright do? He decides to use himself as a test subject. We have this huge bolus of blast data from World War II where Horace Kara Wright just decides to dangle himself from an underwater structure that he built to control the spacing and the high currents and blow himself up. So he was doing smaller charges down at Horsey Lake, which still exists, has a Wikipedia about it, but um, in the UK, so it's still a military training lake. And he was doing that when he was doing like one to two pounds, which is still painful, by the way. <laughs> and then he was doing full on larger scale charges. He was doing these 300 pound depth charges down by the cliffs of Dover. Like this is wartime. So they, uh, you know, now it's a national treasure and they wouldn't even let you think about that. They would ban you from the country for suggesting it. But he somehow got these like groups of volunteers to dangle from this metal rig with him that they were lowered into the ocean on and they knew they were about to be blown up. And so then they would come up and Cam Wright would have them all write down what they felt like and what that sounded like to them. And then he would take a stethoscope and he did this to himself too. He was there for every single one. He would put the stethoscope on his own chest and draw little diagrams of where there was blood in his lungs. Um, so that's actually where we get a lot of our current data because obviously they wouldn't let me do that anymore. But um, <laughs> and I don't think anyone's uh, I don't think anyone's dumb enough to sign up for for that. No matter how enthusiastic I am about the scientific results, I don't know how he talked him into it. I think it was because they're all like literally being shelled in their homes at the same time anyway. But yeah, that's why World War II is really fascinating for underwater blast. Wow. Yeah. In, term, in, term, in terms of aerial bombings as well, how do they how do they get the research information from aerial bombs? The aerial bombs were you may already be familiar with this because I know you guys had Jeffrey Leatherwood on your podcast and he wrote that book Nine from Aberdeen about the history of explosive ordnance disposal. But the aerial bombs over England are really kind of the mother of all explosive ordnance, at least for all um, the English speaking countries. And so these bombs and their, their remainders being left behind in London and then the surrounding areas in England are where a lot of not only explosive ordnance disposal research started, but also like where a lot of our efforts to understand blast trauma started. So there's another Brit called Lord Zuckerman. He was made a Lord for it, or I don't know how that works. I'm not gonna lie to you, but um, Solly, Solly Lord Zuckerman. And he's responsible for a lot of the key blast research that started this entire field. So he's the one who is figuring out, again, they're being blitzed in their homes. He's this amazing physicist. He's figuring out 
how the different components of the shockwave impact different people. And a lot of it is coming from that same scenario of them having so much explosive ordnance that they need to deal with and dispose of. And so they don't know how far they should evacuate, things like that. Um, yeah, so that was really driving all of it. World wow. War II is a very exciting period if you're a huge physics nerd. Excellent. Well, bring, yeah. it, bring it right up to today. Have you seen anything in, in relation to the current conflict in Ukraine that concerns you in terms of uh, weapons being deployed and the resulting blast injuries suffered by the civilian population? I mean, it's all concerning, right? That's the problem. Unfortunately, there's no like great scenario for civilians and explosives because the reality is each war all nations have used the combat scenarios in order to evolve their weapons to become more deadly and one of the things in world war ii that is common and i assume consistent with ukraine we haven't had the reports yet is that unfortunately these bomb shelters are made to withstand external blasts many of them are extremely good at doing that absolutely and arguably they're saving lives there is also going to be the stray random case where a bomb went off exactly in the entryway or in exactly the wrong juxtaposition and again even though overall the shelter is by far the safest place to be you're going to have this rare case where that shockwave is then going to be able to access the shelter it's going to ping pong around inside like a laser beam out of control and it's going to amplify on itself and be more destructive and more lethal to the people inside as a result. Kurt Vonnegut spoke about that. He wrote about that in one of his interviews because he was obviously involved with the German forces during World War II. And he said it was pretty common for them to open these bomb shelters up and find people inside sitting exactly where they'd been when the bombs had gone off that killed them so again yeah. this for me reminds me a lot about the Hunley, but this is a it's a lesson to me that the centuries move forward but the way the human body responds to explosives does not change we have not evolved physically in the one past 150 years and so you're going to be seeing these same patterns of trauma as we are getting more news insight from ukraine and in terms of, of what the media speculation over thermobaric devices being launched into Ukraine, is, is that likely to have a more dramatic effect on the human body? Yes. There's been a lot of misinformation about thermobarics as well. Um, again, I'm sure this is a more informed audience than normal, but just to like reiterate it, they don't vacuum the air out of you. Um, so they're called vacuum bombs because that is the sensation that occurs in any blast. It always feels like you just got hit in the chest from the inside. But with thermobarics, the goal there is to prolong the shockwave. Now, there are a couple different ways to use this. Mixing in aluminum will prolong the shockwave. Having fuel air explosives, where you have that burst of gasoline in the area immediately before the detonation will prolong the shockwave. But essentially what's going on there is you're trying to make the pressure wave last for a longer period of time. So now not only is a person getting hit by a pressure wave, but they're getting hit by a pressure wave that keeps hitting them for longer. And the reason that's damaging and more damaging is very similar to like with electricity. Like if you just get a very brief jolt, you, you might learn a lesson, but you might also survive. If you, if you have that reflex where your muscles clamp down and that electricity keeps flowing through you, you 
continue to increase your risk of death the longer it goes on. And the same thing is true with the blast waveform. The same thing is going to happen to the human body as it's going to happen to the buildings. We both become more susceptible to damage as we are exposed to that blast pressure for longer periods. And a lot of these thermobarics were initially designed for use in these enclosed urban environments where you have people who are near these reflecting surfaces that will then reflect it and make it add to itself yet again. So this is like uh, the word, the phrase echo chamber came from something real, right? Like it's this idea that if we release a sound into an enclosed area, it adds to itself and it multiplies on itself. And the same thing is happening in thermobarics, especially in urban warfare or even cave warfare, where this longer waveform is going to start adding to itself. A lot of people have talked about thermobarics sucking air out of your lungs. Like I'm never going to discount the feelings and sensations reported by blast trauma victims. Like all accounts say that, yes, that is consistent with what this feels like, but our bodies are not necessarily the most reliable reporters of what's happening. So they get that name because of the sensation. But the reality is every single blast has a negative phase. It has this phase where after being a positive pressure, it briefly goes to being a negative pressure. It's just not negative for that long. And so again, like Sally Lord Zuckerman was one of the ones who really looked at this negative phase and tried to determine whether or not that was the part that was injuring the human bodies. And he decided, or he determined, and that's held up since then, that no, it's really the positive pressure that you need to worry about. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. Rachel, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you today and I'm sure our members would be uh, delighted to hear more from you. Likewise. Perhaps we'll, we'll hear you at one of our events, one of our training events. Yeah, maybe, yeah, that would be very <laughs> nice. Um, I, I would be really happy to, hear, to be able to do that. Like I said, I love explaining blast trauma, even though it's a very dark and difficult subject. I think a lot of populations deserve information about this, and especially if they're populations who have potentially experienced it or witnessed it, it's really important to understand the basics of what's going on with the human body because that lets you help prevent yourself from unwittingly being in scenarios that can be even more dangerous, like being in that enclosed space when the blast goes off or standing right next to the reflecting wall, which is also a bad idea. Excellent. Yeah. Well, once again, Rachel, thank you very much for your time and uh, thank you. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the IABTI Blast podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of IABTI. The IBTI is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of the information contained in the podcast series.